Hello, I'm Michael Woods, and this is the ATC Double Cut. Sometimes I talk about turfgrass issues just by myself, just do a monologue about something that I've written about on the ATC blog, giving that content the double cut treatment. But today, I am excited to have a guest on the show, and today's guest is Jim Huntoon, the golf course superintendent at Heritage Club in South Carolina. Welcome to the ATC Double Cut, Jim. Thank you, Mike. Uh, very glad to be here. It's a pleasure to log in with you from Polly's Island, South Carolina. Well, uh, I am in Bangkok at the moment, and we're on opposite sides of the world, and it's really cool how this technology allows us to talk about turf grass issues and golf course maintenance and turf grass management. Um, and so we can share information and learn from each other. And then also we get to share this information with people around the world. It's, it's an amazing world that we live in these days. I agree. I agree. It is. It's uh, really opened a lot of avenues of learning that were not available in the past. Now I saw that uh, Hurricane Ian, which uh, went through Florida, it then went up right through your area. Did the eye pass anywhere near to where you were? And what was the damage like it, in your area? It did. It Technically, landfall, according to the National Hurricane Center, was about 15 miles south of here. But um, as you know, hurricanes are large. Um, the eye did pass pretty close to directly over us. You know, Micah, it was, if you want to get really break it down into meteorolo meteorological terms, you know, the storm had kind of taken a post-tropical um, form uh, before it hit us. There wasn't a true eye anymore. It was disorganized. And I guess the, they were saying it was more of a nor'easter type storm than a pure tropical hurricane so there wasn't a true eye where the sun came out and all that kind of stuff we've been through that here as well but uh, yes it did go right over us there was a period of calming um and the impacts were uh, here at the golf course were pretty minimal you know we had 50 mile an hour winds 55 gusts maybe sustained winds 30 to 40 miles an hour probably for a two hour period and, you know, a 12 hour period of breezy conditions that put down a lot of debris. This is, there's a lot of old trees on this golf course and, um, you know, they produce a lot of pine cones and sticks and acorns and Spanish moss. So a lot of debris pickup and, uh, thankfully no major tree loss, a few large limbs, a couple trees snapped in half, a, stuff like that, but nothing, nothing major. Um, now the island, Polly's Island on the ocean front here suffered, um, pretty substantial damage from the storm surge. It was, um, in relation to the force of the winds, it was much more like a cat three or a cat four type surge that we had here. And, um, a lot of damage up there. You know, the dunes have been decimated and a lot of flooding and um, that kind of stuff. So there are golf courses in this area and in the Myrtle Beach area that are close to the ocean that did suffer from the surge and, you know, had greens and fairways that were inundated and covered with salt water from the surge, Micah. 
Ooh, yeah, that's not a yeah, it's it's not a good situation. It's those kind of storms are uh, yeah, it, it's it's a lot of work to repair the damage that happens. So, yeah, I mean, I I want to say that it's in compared to how it could have been, I'm glad to hear that you just suffered some debris, uh, a lot of debris damage, but not too many trees down or anything like that. And uh, you didn't have too much rain with it. We had six inches of rain um, over about a 18 hour period, but we've been very dry. Um, so it soaked, it really soaked it up. And I think that mitigated some of the tree damage. You know, I've gone through other storms, Hurricane Matthew in 2016, where we were excessively wet and you know, we had 50 trees that were just toppled over because of the wetness. Um, so that that worked in our favor. Um, the flooding went out as fast as it came in. Um, the ground did soak up a lot. And I think the fact that that where we got hit with the eye mitigated the wind some too. I know maybe 50 miles north of here in North Myrtle Beach, um, they had stronger hurricane force winds. And tree. I've heard of golf courses up that way that have you know, a lot of tree damage and everything. So with these tropical systems, it's, you just don't know until they go through, you can, you can get spared sometimes and other times you think you're okay and you really get slapped. It's, it's as, as good as they've gotten with the technology and the forecasting. It's still, you just have to go through it. Yeah. I've, I've experienced that in Japan and in, uh, yeah, in the Philippines, um, and sometimes when the trees go down, you're, it's hard to predict uh, just what the winds are going to do, and I think it, it must depend on things that I haven't studied and don't understand, but things, you mentioned maybe the soil moisture at the time, uh, how wet the soils are at the time that the peak winds are coming through may have something to do with it, and yeah, I, d I just know from a golf course maintenance perspective, uh, it's a lot of work to clean up and it's not like you suddenly have a lot of extra labor and a lot of extra people and machines helping out. Um, no, no we and have you still have the same regular work to do. And then now you have all this extra cleanup. So yeah, I was, I was certainly thinking of you and, and the superintendents in, uh, Florida and in Georgia and the Carolinas last week when that happened. Yeah, it's, you know, we didn't get anything here like they got down in Southwest Florida. That That's catastrophic damage there. But it's, yeah, you know, this is a time of year when we're trending down with labor. Um, so that makes it more difficult. Thankfully, it's cooler now and, you know, the, the grass is not growing very much. So mowing isn't as huge of an issue. And, you know, the cleanup process, Micah, is... I kind of equate it to like a core aeration cleanup process or, um, or healing, you know, you can, a lot of times you can, after a week, after coring the greens, you can get them 80% back to where they were. Well, that last 20% can take three weeks though. And that's kind of like the hurricane cleanup. You know, we've got most of it cleaned up. We, you know, blown everything and we put the bunkers back and getting back to normal, but the last 20% of cleanup, you know, in the beds and around the clubhouse and just all that kind of stuff, it just drags out over a long period of time. I understand. Now I follow you on Instagram and on Twitter. I've seen some of the photos. I think you 
had some free Spanish moss available that you'd blown up. And if anybody wanted to collect that, I think I saw that one on Instagram. Uh, and I put up on the screen here, your handle, which is the same on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Huntoon JMSC. So anybody that doesn't follow Jim, uh, do that and you'll get plenty of, uh, good photos and, uh, inf- how would you describe it? Photos of, uh, golf course maintenance activities. Sure. Just, uh, I don't tend to post a lot on Twitter. I tend to be more active on Instagram. I like to use the stories. I stumbled upon that many years ago and kind of stuck with it. Um, I've always been a person that likes to take pictures and photographs and save them for archives and use them for, um, learning and informational purposes. So it just fit right in. So it's just more of a, um, story of my life, I guess, Micah, as it says, and golf course maintenance and golf courses is certainly a big part of that. Now, um, on the weather topic, let's segue or transition into the blog post that we can give the ATC double cut treatment today, which is also on a weather topic and it's frost delays. And this is something that I've written about quite a bit uh, on the ATC website over the years. And I wrote a blog post in September that has the title, An Alternative Reference for Frost Delays. Now, if you're listening to this, I will put a direct link to this blog post in the show notes so you can check it out. And it has some interesting links. And the first link that I put is the standard reference that I recommend, which is PaceTurf's Clubhouse Edition on why frost delays are necessary. And that is the standard type of reference about that that explains what can happen and how to eliminate any risk from frost damage. And the way to eliminate any risk from frost damage is to not put traffic on on frosted turf. And I wrote in the blog post, I said, if that's what you want to do, then that's the only guide you'll need. But if you want to be adventurous, read on. And then I went on to um, explain some things that we'll talk about. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this post with you, Jim, is because after I posted it, or um, after I'd reshared Paul McCormick's tweet, Paul McCormick from Prince Edward Island in Canada had, had posted a tweet, and he said that, this morning we tried an alternate approach to their first frost of the season and he tagged me in that and he'd said that they went ahead and allowed some traffic or did some uh traffic over frosted rough and you'd sent me a direct message on twitter and said you know micah in i'm i'm paraphrasing here but you said something like in in the myrtle beach area there's been some places that have allowed traffic on frosted turf for many years and i thought okay here's here's somebody who like me has seen both sides of of frost delays and i wanted to talk with you and find out um what people do in the myrtle beach area and uh just explain what i wrote about in this blog post to perhaps a a wider audience have you had a frost yet this year it's uh 
but it's early October, probably, probably no, no frost in South Carolina yet. When would you typically get a frost in that area? Average frost day here, I believe, is November 11th, historically. Okay, so you're so. one month away from from the time that we're recording this. Yep. And and at your golf course at, at Heritage Club, uh, are you Bermuda grass on all surfaces? We are Bermuda grass on all surfaces, except we do have zoysia grass tees on some holes in shade situations. And when you get that first frost, I presume the grass is going to be well on its way to dormancy. So probably you wouldn't need to be rushing to get mowers out or anything, would you? No, no, it'll be, uh, you know, the first frost we're going to typically get here are going to be in the rough only. They're not going to be on the shortcut. Um, those will come more in December and January, but, uh, and you're a private, yeah. are you a private member's facility or uh, No, we're semi-private. Semi um, we do have members. We this is, There's a large community around the golf course, and um, we have about 175 members. But we're also, like every other course that's not fully private in the Myrtle Beach area, you know, we're driven by resort play and uh, local play as well. It's a really a combination of everything, Mike. So... so we're in a situation too with similar to what you mentioned in the blog post about in, in Asia and Japan where, you know, revenue is important and it really is something that has to be weighed with the delay. So, because I think of something in, in the American context, it may be a Saturday morning in November, for example, and there may be a football game at one o'clock that somebody wants to, make sure that they get to that football game and they may have a tea time at 8 a.m. or 8 30 a.m. and they could go from the golf course straight to the you know after they finish their round they could go to the football game or they want to go uh, to a social event where they'll watch the football game on a weekend and if they're held up at, because of a frost delay for 30 minutes or for an hour or for 90 minutes that could throw their football schedule on that Saturday into disarray and you know what what do you do at the at, at the club would you would you hold people for a frost delay or just say we're happy to take your money and uh, go on out and have a good time well it's a it's a game time decision to use the football reference it depends as, as you know you know not all frost are created equal um, there's different levels of, of frosted turf. And, um, you know, we plan on teeing off a little bit later in the winter time to mitigate it somewhat. Um, it, uh, it's really about looking at the sheet, looking at the tee sheet and seeing how many players we have and, and the amount of daylight that we have. Cause obviously in here in the warmer climates during the winter, um, when you're playing golf throughout the winter, you know, out the days are much shorter. So you have to keep that in the back of your mind. Um, you know, here in our area, you can't, you know, it gets dark at five, five thirty throughout most of the winter. So it's a balancing act. You have to look at the T sheet, who's playing, um, you know, how can they be compressed into a certain window? I know Micah, a lot of times when we have heavy frost delays and freezing situations, we may go ahead and plan a shotgun start uh, 
to get all the players out after all the frost is is gone. Um, but then other times we we do let them play on um, frosted conditions. Um, never when it's on the greens, but um, the rough I don't really worry about. Um, especially after it's achieved full dormancy, uh, you know, the fairways, same thing, you know, we're, we don't overseed this, this course. We're one of the very few in Myrtle beach that doesn't. Um, so obviously we, you know, we do, we have a Bermuda grass canopy that we're trying to protect to get us through February and March, which are busy, busy times for us when the grass is obviously not grown all winter and is at its bottom. So I take that into consideration. Um, you know, we paint the fairways here and we do that in the frost to improve the efficacy of the paint. Um, so it just really depends. And I'm careful with the fairways in the fall because I like to, I don't want to have a lot of traffic on them on with frost because again, they're, still not hardened off yet micah so it's kind of it's a balancing act it, it's very variable and it just depends on the frost the time of year and how many players we have that sounds like a reasonable approach i like to ask about the type of damage you've seen have you ever um a 12 hours later or uh 24 hours later or 72 hours later um seen damage on the course and said, man, I wish, I wish I didn't allow that traffic. I have not, but I, full disclosure, I, you know, 10 years ago, 13 years ago, when I first became a golf course superintendent, uh, I wasn't as lenient on this because I didn't have as much experience and I was just following the the standards of, of frost delays. And I think as time's gone on, um, you learn that there probably isn't as much potential for damage. I can think of a, um, I can't really think of any time where I've personally seen damage on my car, golf course for allowing it. I, I, you know, we do do a little bit of overseeding on tees and I, I can think of a situation last winter when, I sent somebody out mowing tees in the morning with a triplex mower. And, uh, you know, sometimes you don't really, the frost doesn't develop until after daybreak. You can go out there and try to evaluate and think, okay, I don't think we're going to have any and it can fool you. And I know a situation where I sent somebody out to mow and I got, we got fooled and the, the ryegrass tee was full of frost and he mowed the entire tee, Micah, you know, with ice crystals falling off the rollers and I saw nothing. But I also know other courses here in Myrtle Beach that have ryegrass collars and will mow the greens while there's, you know, ryegrass um, frosted in the collars. And you can see the tire tracks where the, you know, the grass breaks from the, the frost. I'm assuming that's just the tips of the grass wilting. You would know better than I, you know, scientifically or morphologically what's happening there. But, you know, it's pretty much gone after a day or so. So I can't say where I've seen a lot of damage. Um, I think there is potential for damage when the greens get frozen though. That's a, that's a whole different topic. Yeah. I, well, I appreciate you sharing this with me because I like you, when I was a golf course superintendent, I took the very traditional approach. What I had learned, um, working at golf courses in Oregon and then working in Georgia, uh, 
at those places where I'd worked where in the winter when we did have frost, it was a uh, no maintenance staff on the course and, you know, nobody off the cart path, no vehicles off the cart path and certain in terms of maintenance work and no golfers on the course at all until the course was deemed frost free and, and ready to play. And when I was a golf course superintendent in Shanghai, that was the policy that I implemented without ever thinking about it, because I just assumed that uh, if we put traffic on frosted turf, in that case, it was all cool season grass in, in Shanghai. Um, I expected that there would be damage and I didn't want any damage. So we never, we never tested it. I never deliberately put maintenance traffic on frosted turf. And we certainly didn't allow any golfing traffic on frosted turf. And I went to Japan to be a golf course superintendent in September of 2000. And we had our first frost in November that year, I believe. And there in Japan, it was Tifway 419 on the tees and fairways, which we overseeded with perennial ryegrass. The roughs were Zoysia japonica, and the greens were creeping bank grass. And I remember getting a phone call, and I'd only been in Japan for a couple of months, so my Japanese skills were limited, to say the least. And I got a phone call from the clubhouse um, where I'd, you know, I tried to say that the course was closed now and they've got a bunch of golfers up there ready to play. And they're trying to convey to me that the owner wants us to allow the golfers to play. And I, I, I didn't understand how it worked in Japan. It turns out in Japan, they don't really do frost delays. And that was something that was completely new to me because I was coming from a background where I fully expected that we would protect the turf by not allowing any traffic. And in Japan, that was not really the way that it worked. And that was a wake-up call for me. And I put in writing, I was, I was trying to make my objection to uh, traffic on frosted turf known to everybody, you know, to my boss and to the golf course owner and to everybody uh, that I did not uh, condone that practice. And... I and the maintenance team were not going to be responsible for any damage that might happen. Well, it turned out we did thousands of rounds on frosted turf, including traffic on frosted bent grass and traffic on uh, frosted overseeded tees and fairways. And the damage was minimal. And by springtime, everything was completely normal. And so that... That's something that I just remember how surprised I was, both that people were allowed to play on frosted turf, and secondly, I was really surprised at how well the golf course handled it, how good the turf was in the spring after all that play on frosted turf. And I've subsequently done the math and realized that was about, uh, what was it, a million dollars? Uh, of of green fee revenue that they did that we would have disrupted if we if we did not allow that so i can understand why the owner wanted to let people play because we were a daily fee golf course and people were out there playing paying somewhere in the range of a hundred dollars per round so you know every every tea time was 400 plus dollars and 
um, so th because I was aware of that and I, that practice continues to this day at many golf courses at, at hundreds or thousands of facilities in, in South Korea and in Japan. And because I'm aware of this, sometimes I, I see the tweets or the articles about how precious we need to be about, uh, frost delays and, and how indignant uh, golf course superintendent should be if any golfer dares set foot on frosted turf and how how severe the damage is expected to be from frosted turf and i just say well there's another perspective um there's a part of the world where people are not so concerned about it and i like to share that um and so in this blog post an alternative reference for frost delays i um i I shared this because Paul McCormick had had tagged me in the tweet. So I, I'm bringing up that picture and uh, I will read his tweet. His tweet said, this morning we tried an alternate approach to our first frost of the fall season from Asian turf grass, that's me, and went out anyway. Now it was only a rough frost, nothing on short grass, but previously we would have delayed. And then he said there were no issues at all. And he shows a picture of a uh, nice frost on the rough at the golf course. So he, he tagged me in that. And then I thought, okay, let me, for anybody that, that is not familiar with why he tagged me, I said, let me bring, uh, let me reshare some of the posts that I've had on this topic. So one of them is, uh, playing golf in the snow, more creeping adventures from Japan. So I, I'll put a direct link to all of these posts. They're, they're linked to in this post about the native reference for frost delays. And then in the follow-up post, how to lose 120 million yen with frost delays, I counted up the number of frosts that year based on historical weather data uh, at the golf course where I was a superintendent in Japan. And uh, I looked at the, the round numbers and I realized that if we would have done those frost delays, um, it would have been about a million dollars. Uh, and I show photos, I show what the damage was. And I also show how the turf looked in the spring. And there's some research from South Carolina that I wrote about in another post called fall potassium and winter traffic on a bent grass green. So all of these posts, I, I, I share information about research or observations that have been made about winter traffic on frosted turf or frozen turf and then i put a picture up and i this is from a golf course that i was doing some consulting at in japan and i annotated that photo and i i i showed a picture of a frost cover that's folded up it had been used that uh that evening uh that night so it would be put out in the late afternoon before sunset and then it's removed in the morning so the golfers can go play at the scheduled time and i wrote there that i said that covers are used as a service rather than as a grass protectant and the frost covers are used specifically as a service to the golf players so that they can putt on unfrosted turf and you mentioned to me in in that conversation that we had uh on on twitter you said that 
it's a ab frost you is an abnormal golf condition and you really wouldn't want to putt on frosted turf because it's kind of like you know putting through casual water or something nobody wants to putt through a puddle and nobody wants to putt across frosted turf uh, and I agree with you, it's not an ideal way to play. But the way that this is done in Japan, as you'll see in this picture, they, they, this is the practice green in this case, but on some holes on the course that they know will have frost on the greens or um, certainly around the hole location for the day, it, um, it would be common to put the frost cover so that there won't be frost but people can certainly walk across the frosted turf to get to those areas and then they can putt on an unfrosted area. So that's something that I have uh, seen. And I realize that, that uh, yeah, we, maybe we don't need to be as precious as we are about frost delays. But I don't think this is a very popular opinion. But then you said, well, there are places in, in Myrtle Beach where maybe they're taking a similar approach is saying, if you, if you want to go play golf, go ahead. Correct. And it's the owners, um, you know, are reliant on that revenue and that, and yeah, so it's, it's been that way for many years. And I, it was a very, it was very obtuse to me early on, but the more I've learned and about green keeping and golf course maintenance and, um, running a business of a golf course and how all the numbers work, it, it, it makes sense. I mean, like I told you in the uh, messages, you know, to me playing in on frost is an abnormal condition. You know, you can play in casual water, right? You can, I've seen golfers over the years play through puddles on greens. Um, you can do that and not have damage and it'll be fine. Uh, my perspective as a golfer, if I'm paying top dollar um, to play somewhere, um, I don't want to be told that I have to go out and play in frost. I'd rather wait until it melts off. I'd rather wait till it's a little bit warmer. But um, if you do this long enough, Micah, you understand that there's golfers out there that will play in any weather, in any conditions, no matter what. So if they're willing to step up and pay and play, then um, it's important for the overall health and profitability of the course to let them go yeah i unless you're absolutely convinced or you're certain that the damage is going to be so severe that it's not worth letting them go play and that's what i thought it was i i i would have thought at a previous time in my life that people walking across that frosted section of the green to get out to that area that had been covered to do their practice putting. I'm referring to the picture that I'm showing now. I would have thought that that would damage the grass irreparably. And we'd be looking at resodding or needing to touch it up with seed, or we'd have poa annua invasion in the areas where the bent grass would have been thinned out or something. And it, what I've seen at, uh, yeah, many years, many properties, um, a lot of experience of this is that uh, all those worst case scenarios, I just haven't seen them happen. So it's, uh, it's, it's something that is, uh, yeah, I, I don't know why 
if you're running a, a golf course as a business, um, you wouldn't at least consider this. And, you know, I think a lot of people do um, allow this. They just don't uh, advertise it so much because I've talked at seminars uh, in Oregon, for example, and uh, I gave a talk at the Oregon Superintendents Association meeting uh, in 2019, I think. And the topic of frost delays did come up and it turned out i remember specifically there were people from east moreland golf course in portland and i believe it's forest hills uh for i think it's forest hills over uh a little bit west of portland in cornelius oregon um people from those courses mentioned that yeah they don't really do frost delays if if i if i remember our conversations correctly and they don't really see damage and the golfers are happy but of course there there's not a lot of places that are sharing the type of information of we don't have frost delays we don't worry about it but we do see a lot of information in the trade uh publications or in blog posts and in on twitter and and so on about uh, let's let's protect the turf at all costs and and i just think that it's it's nice to put that interesting different way out there and so i've talked about it some and in the blog post i i put links and i queued these up uh three three specific conversations that I've recently with people about frost delays i queued those up at the proper time where we stopped or where we started talking about frost delays so i talked with dave kubian in new zealand he's a golf course superintendent there but he also has a phd in plant uh, biology plant physiology and uh, so he uh, has an interesting perspective on frost delays and the specific type of damage that may or may not occur and i talked with mr ichizono in japan he's a golf course superintendent at a golf course where they do allow to uh, play on frosted turf and they do thousands of rounds and he he explains the damage that he does see and i talked with bjarni hannison who is a golf course superintendent in iceland where they see frosts basically that they have the potential to see frost pretty much any month of the year and they do see a lot of frost and he talks about the types of damage uh, that he's seen and the types of, um, what would we say, uh, how he manages, uh, you know, if, if they allow traffic or not. So I would encourage anybody that's interested in this, please, uh, please check out some of this just, just to see how it's done in, in some interesting, uh, different parts of the world. And there's a blog post, uh, called playing golf in ice and snow, um, where, I, which I linked to that one also. That one has more pictures and videos. It's got videos from Korea of big machines taking snow off of fairways uh, in order to allow uh, golf as soon as possible. So there's, yeah, it's it's a business, and and uh, it's it's interesting in the U.S. how people are tend to be as I was just. Uh, protecting the grass at all costs and and possibly if you're if you're uh if you're the type of club that accepts accepts revenue but accepts money for green fees uh you might be turning away uh revenue so uh, i i just 
I'm interested in this in two ways, really, Um, just because it's so different from how I was uh, taught and how I used to think and how I was, uh, how I realized it's typically done in the U.S. as I saw how it's done differently in other parts of the world. I thought that's very interesting. Uh, And then also just to get the information out there, if, if you are a golf club somewhere in the world that is scared of frost delays because of uh, what you've heard or, or what, uh, the standard recommendations are, maybe just think about it. If, if you would have golfers that want to pay money to play on frosted turf, you might be able to accept their money and not, uh, not see too much damage. Yeah. Don't you think Micah that, you know, some of this came from, you know, when, when frost delays first came about in greenkeeping, I don't know when that was. I'm assuming it was in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s or whenever, but a lot of clubs then were not uh, were not daily fee revenue-based. They were private, and um, they were making the same amount of money whether people came or not. So I think in today's world of golf, there is a lot more daily fee, resort, revenue-driven type play and um, maybe that's why it's gone by the wayside uh, somewhat. Or it seems that where there's opportunity for for people to do it and make money, um, they've tried it and gotten away with it. So, yeah, and I I guess you you bring up uh, the time when frost delays perhaps were implemented. Um, there would have been less sand root zones also so i think a sand root zone uh, tends to be pretty stable under a frosted turf but when you have a slightly frozen layer of of soil and grass above a soil that could be wet and soft then you can have a different kind of problem which um, could be kind of shearing the the plants uh, damaging the roots separating the plants from the soil and so on which is certainly something to be concerned about when you have a frozen layer above an unfrozen layer but on sand root zones i think it would be rare to uh, have the soil be so unstable that such a problem could occur and what we see with modern golf courses a lot of them certainly the areas that get the most traffic tend to have a sandy root zone which you then you just have uh you have something that's pretty stable whether it, it has ice involved or or not mm-hmm. and it, yeah that's a good point i i should check some of my old books also and check some of the old usga green section uh bulletin articles and so on from that era and see what they were saying about frost but uh yeah i i had a lot of conversations and i mentioned this in my conversation with bjarni which i put a link to uh in this post about the alternative reference for frost delays um, I mentioned some of the conversations that I had at the Masters tournament and golf course superintendents from the southeastern region of the U.S. were telling me that uh, a lot of them are at private clubs. Their members are paying a lot of money to have perfect conditions or as perfect as possible. And their members want to play on unfrosted turf and their members want to play on, uh, you know, turf that is not damage from somebody else who's played across frosted turf so they they have zero tolerance for risk 
um, because that's what their members don't want any risk and their members are so happy to not play on the frosted turf. And that's not anything that I can argue with. Um, and so in that situation, it makes complete sense to have frost delays. But if it's a situation that I got myself into in Japan, where we had, you know, for example, in, in Japan, they do a two-way start. So on an 18-hole golf course, you'd have tee times on hole one and hole 10, and they do uh, as many tee times as they can. And then as they switch, people stop for lunch, and they can have even more tee times as those people have stopped for lunch. And then they'll stop the tee times, and you do the crossover. So you tend to get a lot of people playing early in the morning. Um, you know, So you'd have like three hours of tee times off hole one and, and three hours of tee times off hole 10, and then you might have a little bit of tea times after that, but basically everybody's playing in the morning and then they're going to go home and people in Japan would make their tea times months in advance, perhaps certainly weeks in advance. Nobody's just going to roll up to the club and expect to play because it's going to be booked, especially on a weekend. So I got myself into the situation of not really appreciating how that business model worked. And people are on tight schedules. They have trains that run on time and they may need to catch a train or have a meeting or so on. And they are not going, you just can't do a delay because people have arranged their schedule and then they're your guest for that day at the golf course. They want to have the golfing experience. So from the, uh, from the clubhouse perspective, from the owner's perspective, they want to have those 160 golfers or so who have all arranged their schedule uh, to play golf at the time that they made the tee time that needs to happen. And my role as the golf course superintendent, I was looking at it as I need to protect this grass. We're going to turn, we're going to tell those 160 people to wait, but they can't wait because they, in, in that culture, in that country, you make a schedule and then you stick to it. And so the golfers are coming to the golf course with their schedule for the day already set. And I was throwing a big wrench into that and it just, it just doesn't work. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a revelation to me that we didn't, uh, kill the greens that winter. <laughs> you know, we, we do the double T system here in Myrtle beach as well. Always have. So just... you do the stop for lunch treatment also. No, no, we don't do the stop. Five minutes at the turn, Micah. That's all you <laughs> You But have to we come. do the double T and always have. So another similarity between golf in Japan and um, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So Yeah, um, I, I, and another similarity is the, is the climate and the grass types. Yes. Um, you'd have a similar latitude there. Do you, do you happen to know what latitude you're at? You I believe or? I was going to say 36 and change is what we're at. Yeah. And, and that's, I, I think Tokyo's about 35, 36. And yeah. so in the Tokyo area, in the Kanto Plain, there might be about 700 golf courses. There's a lot of golf courses uh, within a couple hours of Tokyo. And they would typically have cool season grass, on, typically be bent grass greens, and then yep. warm season everywhere else, which I know historically was what you had in the Myrtle Beach area, I believe. So and correct you still have some bent grass courses there we we do have a few you know with the ultra dwarf revolution most have gone away but 20 years ago there was probably more bent than bermuda but now it's shifted you know if we have a hundred courses in this area maybe five or six of them have bent um so we used to have a couple with seashore past palum but 
that's gone away back to Bermuda. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of similar similarity, especially when you get into ornamentals too. There's so many um, ornamentals that come from Asia that we have uh, that we use here. So, well, I I was hoping that I would be in Myrtle Beach this November next month uh, for the Carolina show. Are you still on the Are you on the board of the Carolinas GCSA? Yes, I am. And I had uh, been invited to attend and I was looking forward to going to that show, which I've read about and seen pictures of and so on. Um, I was hoping that I could do it, but I was also simultaneously invented, invited to uh, a series of other seminars in another part of the world. And due to the way the travel uh, schedule works out and, and so on, I've uh, I've not been able to make it, or I wasn't able to accept the invitation to the Carolinas show this year. But I'm hoping to do so in the future. When is that held? Uh, and is it is it sold out? I like how's it how's it looking this year? It's 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 looking it's looking good. Yeah, well, it's going to be November 14th through the 16th. We traditionally have it in the third week of November, and uh, we're hoping that you've cleared your calendar then in 2023, Micah, because we are going to re-extend the invitation, I believe, and we're hoping you will come. Um, hopefully, I don't yeah. have to talk. Yeah, hopefully, I don't have to talk about frost delays because. Uh, I'm afraid I'd get tarred and feathered uh, talking about that, but maybe, yeah, it's good talking with you and realizing that there are uh, people in Myrtle Beach that would realize that I'm not, uh, I'm not crazy when I'm saying this, that, that, yeah, you can actually uh, put some traffic on frosted turf. So yeah, maybe we could do a a frost delay session. (laughs) I think, um, you know, here in the Southeast too, I think it's, pretty common for even private clubs that, you know, once the turf achieves full dormancy, when the Bermuda grass is fully dormant, um, I think it's pretty common even at private clubs to allow play on frost. If, if, if people are interested in doing that, I just don't think there's a high demand for it as is in some of the situations like we've talked about. Most people that are members at a club, I think are going to want to wait until it's a little bit warmer because another consideration when playing in frost mike is it's cold and it's below my threshold for for play yeah i uh i know frank rossi sometimes has uh jim copenhaver on copenhaver on his show i think from pellucid golf and he's they've talked about that uh golfing golfable hours or golfable days or potential rounds based on weather index and i think um that's interesting of course i think they keep that formula proprietary but you have to wonder uh in different parts of the world whether there'd be a different definition of what golfable weather is and if you see some of the links that i've put to photos from uh, photos and videos from japan and korea you will see that what uh golfers in that part of the world consider golfable weather might be a little bit different uh, where people in America would tend to only play golf in, in more mm, clement weather. But you'll see, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can have snow, you know, light snow, and 
in, in Japan, you could have light snow and frost and frozen conditions, and you won't have people canceling. <laughs> They're still rolling into the parking lot, expecting that if they haven't been notified that that you know the course is closed because of snow or something they're going to come play because they have a tea time we've and, had and that too yep you have you have that too yep. oh yeah yeah we, we get snow here too and we've allowed play with some snow still on the ground i mean there were 14 golfers here on uh, saturday morning after the hurricane um that were they were here <laughs> and ready to play oh man <laughs> yeah oh. and uh did we you have actually to turn ended them up we we turned them away, but we opened later that day. We basically got the greens cleaned off and the cart pass clear, and let them have it. They and many courses did that, um, you know, because again, these people are here on uh, this is prime season, and they're here to play. And you know, they were cooped up all day Friday because of the storm, and you know, they want to play. They're our guests, and uh, like you said, and. Uh, you know, it's important to accommodate, and especially when you involve lodging, when you're housing them too, it brings in different considerations. You know, um, having some staff on hand to, you know, feed them if that's part of their package, and you know they're here and they want to play, and um, let them. You know, you have to let them go. Unfortunately, those 14 gentlemen had a second afternoon tea time at another course down the road, so. They were, they were planning 36 holes that day. So again, Mike, it's kind of like what you said with the trains, you know, they had a schedule and unfortunately we were not ready to open for them to play, but they did get their second round in um, oh, okay. as we had people playing in that afternoon. Good for them. Yeah. I, yep. I know right after a storm like that, safety is of course quite a concern and you have to watch out for branches and, and uh, other things you know, trees that may be in an unsafe condition and, and so on. So you can't yes. really just let people out on the property. Um, but it's nice that, that you were able to get it ready by the afternoon. So, yep. yeah, well, I, I really appreciate you joining me to talk about frost delays and I hope some people will, uh, will enjoy the, perhaps an alternative perspective that they may not hear all the time. Oh. I, I don't think a lot of people are out there saying, yeah, I, I, I don't hear this viewpoint uh, of maybe frost delays are overdone uh, too often. It's like we, as an industry, we kind of keep it quiet because we we might have an idea that frost doesn't, that traffic on frost doesn't damage the grass too much. Or we've all had that experience of the grass frosted up as we were out there with the mowers and we didn't see any damage and, and so on. But nobody really talks about it because you wouldn't want the golfing public to think that that they could just go out and and uh traipse all over a frosted golf course then uh i know the golfing public doesn't listen to the atc double cut so we're at no risk of this information uh getting into you know the golfing mainstream but for the turfgrass managers who do listen to this uh i I would like to see more people just test it a little bit. Go walk across the back of a green, uh, you know, make some big footprints on frosted turf and just see what happens. And unfortunately, I don't have a chance to do that very much because I'm in Bangkok and I forgot to turn on the air conditioner, which is probably good for the sound, but I've been sweating here because it's quite warm. And, uh, you know, I it there's 
it never gets below 20 Celsius here, uh, which is about 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So there, it's not even close to a frost in, in Bangkok or in Southern Thailand where I live. It, it doesn't even get that cool. So I don't get a chance to play with this much anymore. But when I did live in places where there was frost, I did not go out and, and do any of those tests. And it wasn't until I was forced to do it by the owner saying, Micah, we are going to open, you know, I'm in charge, you know, the owner's in charge. It's, it's not me that was really in charge. I, I don't have the, the power to close the golf course like I thought I did. And so I was forced to allow that traffic and I put in writing that I didn't want it to happen just to, you know, cover my perspective on that. Um, but it turned out I was wrong. And in that, in that case, we, we saw very minor damage, just a little bit of thinning, but the thinning I think was not so much from traffic on frosted turf as it was heavy traffic from all the golfers who are, who were out there happy to play on turf that was growing slow because it was winter. And then as soon as it warmed up in the spring, the grass, uh, you know, we, we get the temperatures, we get the light, we get a little bit of fertilizer, the grass comes back, uh, maybe better than it was in the, in the autumn. So uh, what I'm saying is if I was living in Canada or in Minnesota or in Oregon or in Yorkshire right now, I would play around just out of curiosity with putting my own traffic on some safe areas of, of frosted turf where no, maybe nobody would notice except for me uh, and, and the maintenance staff and just try to try to understand this a little bit more. Well, thank you for your curiosity because it's helped us turf grass managers in many ways over the years. So kudos to you for that. Well, thank you. Hopefully uh, I can continue to be curious and hopefully I can avoid spreading misinformation. So I appreciate you letting me know that I'm not alone in, in thinking that allowing uh, play or traffic on frosted turf may be possible in some situations. I, I appreciate hearing uh, that. And, and uh, when I do get it wrong, I hope you and any of the listeners and viewers will also let me know because um, I, I must get it wrong sometimes too. And I certainly want to be corrected. And uh, you know, I've, I've been wrong many times in the past. Um, like with that frost issue that 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 we've been talking about today and you know if i get anything wrong uh, i'm happy to be corrected so that i can uh, avoid spreading misinformation so anyway thanks everybody for listening thanks so much jim for taking the time to talk with me today anything else before we sign off no sir thank you for having me it was an honor to be on the atc double cut well, thank you so much. I'll go ahead and sign off and be back again soon with another uh, interesting turfgrass topic to discuss for ATC from Bangkok, Thailand. I am Micah Woods. Thanks for listening.